You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Um, if you could turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, uh, we're going to be looking at a familiar passage where it talks about being born again, which is kind of providential uh, since we just celebrated the birth of some children. And if you're in the room and you're wanting to get pregnant, you need to come to the first service because we dedicated 14 babies in the first service. And so apparently you walk in the doors in the first service, something happens. I, I don't know. And so it's, as we're talking about what it seems to happen a lot at Stonegate, a lot of birthing, um, which uh, good news for us is we just had our third child, um, Cruz Dawson Maddox, uh, on Monday. And uh, I wanted to bring him in to get dedicated, but apparently that's a little reckless when he's only six days old. Apparently, you guys carry infectious disease that could kill my child. And so, uh, which I thought, he's a Maddox, he could probably handle it, day six, that's fine. Uh, but I got outvoted. So he's not here. I just wanted to be the youngest dedication in Stonegate history, and that won't be happening. So here we go. Um, as we were looking uh, forward to this, it's actually a, a verse, verse 8, that when we get to, where it's talking about the Spirit of God moving. Um, and this passage really stood out to me because of that, of wanting to follow how the Spirit of God moves. It says it doesn't know where it comes from or, or where it goes. And so this passage is something I started to meditate on as we were up late at night with a brand new baby, changing diapers. The first night, we changed eight diapers. It's at that point I said, we have to redo our budget. Eight diapers. And I use the term we really loosely. Um, I was there. But when we look at this idea of born again, we're going to see Jesus say, or we're going to see four things that come out. And so what Jesus is saying is he's going to show us the depth of our lostness. He's going to show us the resistance of our lostness. And then we're going to see Jesus' authority over our lostness. And then we're going to look at how the gospel saves us from our lostness. And so if you're taking notes, you could literally just write all that down right now and then just check out because I haven't gotten a lot of sleep this week. So that's about as good as it's going to get. Uh, but we're going to start with this in John chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to be introduced to an idea that first entered. These words first entered with Jesus talking to Nicodemus. This idea of you have to be born again. And it's an interesting idea that when we look throughout history of the church, we see it start right here. It's not, a, it's not an Old Testament concept, or those words aren't used in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, when you want to look at salvation, when you want to understand what the kingdom of God is like, it has to be this whole do-over, this new life, this redoing, this birthing again, a new life. And he makes allusions to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at that. And so we're going to see these themes that have always been there. But that term, born again, in our day, is kind of almost a negative term. I mean, if you poll people about Christianity, it's almost like they would say, you know, Christians are okay. I can get along with Christians. But those born-again Christians, they're crazy. And the problem is the New Testament would stand and say, there's only one type of Christian, and there are people who have been given new life. There's only born-again Christians. And the problem is we've just given it a bad reputation. And part of that is because of researchers like Barna, George Barna, a great researcher. He's kind of the Christian pollster. He took a survey, and he said, I want to see how born-again Christians live in concept of other people. And his findings were, very, were terrible. 
for the church. He said, those who claim to be born again live very, very similar lives to a lost world. And what the Bible would stand and say is, they're not born again. And so when we look at this, we want to come that seeing the history of this. George, George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening, um, he preached on both sides of the ocean, on the European side and the, and the American side. It was estimated he traveled 70 times by boat, back and forth preaching, that he preached over John chapter 3 over 3,000 times. When you're preaching five times a day, you can get to that, but 3,000 times. At one point, someone questioned him and says, George, why are you always talking about you've got to be born again, you've got to be born again? It seems like every time you preach, you just say that over and over again. You've got to be born again. Can you come up with anything else? Why do you always talk about you've got to be born again? And his response was, because you have to be born again. <laughs> and so we see this famous passage right here. It's starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a, na- a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs in- that you do unless God is with them. And so stopping right there as we work through the text, the first thing that we want to see is Jesus says something about the depth of our lostness. He's going to say this, We remain lost no matter what we achieve. And so we want to look a little bit closer at this guy, this guy named Nicodemus, this Pharisee who's a ruler among his people. And so the first thing that we see is religious people can be lost. Good religious people who read the Bible, who understand the way this is supposed to flow, can be lost. Children who are dedicated in a service just like this and grow up in church can be lost. And so we focus around this. It says, verse 1, there was a man named there's a man who was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And so we want to understand what's it mean to be a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a conservative group who were known for great teaching, great understanding of the scriptures, who were known to memorize the Old Testament, maybe even the oral law, who were known to take the word of God, what was taught in the synagogues, out to the streets. They wanted to be around the people. They wanted a pious life. They wanted rules. They wanted to honor God. They were known. They had great reputations. And yet this Pharisee, what was lost. And so there's a warning in that, that when we come to church and when we do good things and when we approach things of faith, that we need to know those things don't merit salvation. You can be religious and be very, very lost. But look in verse 1. It goes on. It doesn't just say a Pharisee named Nicodemus. It says a ruler of the Jews. And so it tells us religious leaders can be lost. Now look at me, that means pastors can be lost. That means elders can be lost. That means Christian leaders can be lost. That means there's not an achievement that you get to a certain level of knowledge that guarantees salvation. There has to be a work of God upon you that you can know a lot and you can be very, very lost. Now look at what it says, ruler of the Jews. It's talking about Nicodemus being a part of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is very foreign to us because it exhibited a power within the hands of a church group, within the hands of a religious sect that we don't have any understanding of. 
And so the Romans, they controlled the area. They rule on high. But in the areas where they controlled, they would resurrect a local body to govern that area because they didn't care how it went down. They just wanted to be peaceful and they wanted tithe, or not tithe, they wanted taxes to come in on time. And so in Jerusalem, they raised up the Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 to 72 men. And they would come from various stakes of life. And they would work as the judicial, the legislative, and the executive. The only thing they couldn't do was the the death penalty. And so he was a part of this. Now, it says he was a Pharisee, a part of this. There would be some people who would be part of that class who were aristocrats. They were wealthy. And so they bought their way onto that. There would be other who'd be born of the priestly tribe. And so kind of by heredity, they would be the high priest they would be on that. But the Pharisee, like Nicodemus, he was there because he was a master student of theology. He was a well-learned person. When you wanted to know something about the Old Testament or about the oral law, the commandments of God, you would go to like someone of Nicodemus who has studied and learned a lot. And so he stood among as a leader. But we see religious leaders can be lost. Now look at verse 2. Look how he approaches. He says, Rabbi, we know. Now you might just circle that because there's no indication in the text. There's no indication in the text at all that anybody was with him. It was at night. It seems that he was alone with Jesus. It was just Jesus and him. And he comes and he says, hey, we know. Now look at what he says. He says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from, from God. Now, there is a danger. Now, we live in kind of a Christianized culture where a lot of people come to God and they say, we know something about salvation. We know something about what it takes to get to heaven. We know what it takes to be with God in heaven. And we live in a nation that says, we know. And so there's this assumption that we come and we say, we know how this thing works out. And so he comes with a lot of education in his background. Jesus will refer to him as the teacher of Israel. It is like the resident muckety-muck professor of theology. He has all the credentials and he comes and says, hey, we've been watching you and we know. We know what's going on. And we have a few questions, but we know what it takes. We know about the kingdom of God. We know. And so look how it unfolds. And so it starts to unfold in what he says about what he knows. And so we see that religious people can be lost. We see that religious leaders can be lost. And we see that religious leaders who know quite a lot about Jesus can be lost. Look how verse 2 unfolds. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he saw some things about this. He saw that Jesus was a great teacher. And so there is a sign of respect that he comes. The teacher of Israel comes to this itinerant preacher who is from nowhere and says, man, I see the way you teach. You know something. You are on to something. People are drawn to you. You exposit the word in an incredible way. I see something. You are a great teacher. He goes on. He says, I know you have to be sent by God because the miracles you do are not like the other faith healers. They're incredible. And so in this time, there were other people who were faith healers. And it's almost like this learned man, Nicodemus, says, hey, I know some of them are charlatans. You know, they kind of use this psychosomatic, get you excited, but you do incredible miracles that could only be explained that God is with you. I mean, if you turn a couple pages to John chapter 5, he heals a blind guy. 
But it's not just a blind guy. It's a blind guy who's been blind since birth. And now he's an adult. It's hard to fake that for all those years and then to get healed. He says, the things you do are incredible. And so it's easy to see that you come from God. And so when, when this starts to unfold, you need to understand that you can be a religious person. You can be a religious leader. You can be a religious leader who knows a lot about the scriptures and still be lost. And it's something that we see warning on. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? It, it was a few months ago, but I preached on that because it's kind of a text that scares me. He says, not everyone on that day at the end of time who says, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal people in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he says, I'll say to them, depart, for I never knew you. I mean, Jesus warns against that. But we also see warnings all throughout church history. Listen to what Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, says. And he's speaking to pastors, and he says this, See that the work of your saving grace be thoroughly wrought in your own souls. Take heed to yourself, lest you be void of that saving grace which you offer to others and be strangers to the effectual working of that gospel which you preach. At least while you proclaim the word of the necessity of a Savior, your own heart should neglect him and should miss an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed to yourself lest you perish while you call upon others. Take heed of the perishing and lest you famish yourself while you prepare food for them. And so what he says to spiritual leaders and he says to pastors is something that we all need to hear. When you come to the word and you start to look at it, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget that no amount of learning can save you, but you have to have a work of God upon you that changes you. Don't forget that. Take heed to that, that you have to go to Jesus just like Nicodemus went to Jesus. And so if you look at this, I want to pull attention just to one area where it says in verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night. Now, it's interesting because commentaries take a lot of different side of why Nicodemus went to him by night. And so a lot of commentaries will talk about Nicodemus went to Jesus by night because he was the teacher of Israel. He had a lot of respect. They didn't know what to think about Jesus. So he was ashamed to go to Jesus and he was fearful of what he might lose. And I, I would say that's possible. I mean, certainly there was a lot going. They were starting to get interested in Jesus and people started to follow Jesus. And as we see unfold in the Gospel of John, they make a decision in chapter 9 that they're going to kill Jesus. And so there was a lot to lose. But we also see in chapter 9 or chapter 7 of John that we don't see Nicodemus as a coward at all. In chapter 7 verse 50, when they're making the decision, we've got to stop Jesus. He is messing everything up for us. Nicodemus stands up and he stands and he says, do we really condemn someone without hearing them first? And they just brush him aside and said, do you not know that he's from Galilee, that the Messiah couldn't come from Galilee? They just push him aside. It doesn't seem like he cares what people think. Or we jump ahead to John 19 after the death of Jesus and we see him and Joseph and Arimathea. They go and they reclaim the body of Jesus and they prepare a burial for everyone to see. And so if it was out of cowardice that he went at night, then God did something in him that took him from cowardly to bold. God did something to change him. Or maybe 
Or maybe he just knew the rigorous structure of someone who taught. Maybe he was like Whitfield who taught five times a day and knew the only time I could get alone with Jesus was at night. And so he goes to Jesus at night because he wants to have a conversation. And he goes and he thinks he knows something. He says, we see this. We know. And Jesus stops him right there and he says, listen, there's a great divide where darkness and light always collide. And so if you look at that, it says, you can believe that Jesus is a great teacher and darkness doesn't care. You can believe that Jesus did miracles and darkness doesn't care. You can even believe that Jesus did miracles through the power of God and darkness doesn't care. But Jesus changes the subject and was here where darkness and light collides. Is Jesus God? Is he authoritative to talk about salvation? And so all of a sudden, there's something that changes in the text where John takes the opportunity to use this mental picture of darkness and light. And it happened at night. That's why he said it happened at night. But he takes that moment to talk about a constant theme that's in the book of John. Darkness being invaded by the light. And that's where battleground happens. And so if you remember John chapter 1, it starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made that have been made, with nothing that was made without Him. And then it says this, In Him was life, and the light was the light, and the light has shown in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then he repeats it at the end of chapter 3 where he says, Darkness and light, and the darkness has not understood it. And so right at this, right at this moment in his life, it's almost this standoff. Who is Jesus? And so for just a second, you may have been dedicated on day two in a church. You may have gone to every VBS in your town as you grew up. You may have been a, a part of a Awana's and you memorized every verse you have ever seen. You may have even had experiences in church and been moved emotionally and all of that. But darkness will let all of that happen. Darkness stands its battleground when it comes to this. Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? And so we have this sharp change. Look at verse 3, and what we see in the sharp change is we see what Jesus says about the resistance of our lostness. And it's this, our flesh resists salvation. In verse 3, what you see is Nicodemus hasn't asked anything yet. He just comes, he says, this is what I see. We know that you're from God. We know that you're a teacher. We know that you do miracles. And all of a sudden it changes, and Jesus answered him, which is kind of weird because he didn't ask a question. And so some commentaries, they say that we're missing some text, but I don't think we're missing text at all. Most of the commentaries that I read say we're not missing anything. What we're seeing is the Son of God take the moment to say, listen, you think you see something, but I'm going to tell you, you see nothing. And so look at this in verse 3. It says this, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, circle that, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's going to go on in verse 4. It says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so it comes, he says, You have to be born again to see. Nikki, you think you come to me and you see something and you know something, but I'm going to tell you right now, you don't see anything. You're missing it. And so we see this resistance. And what, if, if you're interested in doctrine and theology, and you should be, uh, but you should always pull doctrine 
from passages. What we see here growing is the, the, the concept of effective calling. And so what, what he said is effective calling is that God has drawn Nicodemus here and they are at this battle line where darkness and light is happening and he comes with an interjection and says, I think I know a lot of what's going on. And Jesus says, you don't see anything, but I'm pulling you and my calling is always effective. I'm already working your life and I'm drawing here. But for you to see, you have to be born again. Now, look, look at this. So from verse 3 to verse 4, after he hears, you have to be born again. He has a great question. How is that possible? I mean, that's a great question, right? I mean, it's a question of how is it possible? I don't think my mom's going to be okay with that. I don't think it's going to work out. And we start to say, maybe he's kind of dense, maybe he's kind of thick, but this is like the master teacher of Israel. He's a theology major. He teaches, and so you, to get to that level, you have to be able to pick up on some allegory. And so I think he understood that Jesus was speaking allegorical, but he proposes back and says, I don't see how that's possible. You're promising too much. Now look at verse 5. It says, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And so he comes back and he just says it again. He says it has to be something that God does. And so let's just picture this imagery just for a second. And so he says, if you want to know what getting into the kingdom of God is like, it's not like a rigorous education that you study really hard. It's not like a group of work list that you do or a merit list that you have to accomplish. It's more like a mother giving birth to a child. Now I've got recent experience with this. And I want to ask you a question. In the birthing process, in the labor and delivery room, in the present holistic style of today, the father has to be there, the child is coming, and the mother has to be there. Now, in the 1950s, the father didn't have to be there. Somehow the woman was knocked out and the baby just appeared. And in the labor and delivery room, that's where she was with a bunch of doctors. But out in the outer room were a bunch of men and they had cigars and bourbon. And they were just wondering whether they got a baby boy or a baby girl. And miraculously it happened. It was the good days. But now with a holistic view, the father has to be right there in the mess of everything. And so let me just, let's take a list. In the birthing process, is the baby active or passive in it? Is he causing his birth or is he a passive recipient, a passive evictee of the mother's womb? Now right there, I just I, before you say anything, if you're a mother, I want you to hold on to your chair because I don't want you to get upset at me. I don't want you to get upset at anyone who would say the baby is doing a lot of work because it's you. You are laboring. You are delivering. And it's this incredible process that I got to learn for the first time three years ago as Quinn was being born. And I didn't learn first in the labor and delivery room. I learned first in a classroom. We go to a class to learn how this works, to find out how our bodies work to produce and birth a baby. And we get there, and I hope it's a big crowd like this, but it's a very, very small crowd. It is us and one other couple. And so we got a lot of details and a lot of specific personal experience, cuddle, love, everything right there. 
And so they start to describe how labor happens, that hormones are secreted, and it starts to take the uterus, which I didn't even know what a uterus was, and it starts to dilate. And your body causes the uterus to pull up and to dilate. And when it gets to 10 centimeters, it's go time. And all of a sudden, the woman's body produces a different hormone. And so you're at 10, and everything's been going. And the father is there handing just two fingers. Because if you hand three fingers in the contractions, you pay for it. So you hand two fingers to your wife. And you sit there with coffee, and you watch the monitor of, well, that contraction's a doozy as it goes up and comes back down. But all of a sudden... It changes everything. A new hormone comes out, and it turns everything backwards. And where the uterus was pulling up, it then starts to push the baby out, and everything changes. And it is not passive for the mother by any means. And so why this is going on, our teachers thought, we need a better visual. And so she pulls out a stuffed animal pelvis bone. And it kind of looked like Skeletor's crown. And she placed it down and she starts to talk about the pelvis and how it was positioned. And then she pulls out a baby, not, not a real baby, a fake baby. And then she pulls out what looked like a flesh-colored turtleneck, which was the uterus. And she shoves the baby in the uterus and she shows how the baby comes out of the pelvic bone. And I was ruined instantly. And so we have this visual. And so we say the baby is a passive recipient of being birthed. It doesn't decide to be born. It's acted upon. The father is, it hurts me to say, but a passive agent in this. But the mother is completely active. And so when he says, how do we get into the kingdom? He says, God has to act upon you in an incredible way, and it's like new birth. And so, just as we look at that, there's a couple things that I want you to see between these verses. And so look at verse 3 and 5. Verses 3 and 5, there's some parallel because the terminology that we get to in verse 5. So in verse 3, it says you have to be born again. And then in verse 5, it says this, you have to be born of water and of spirit. And commentaries have taken different sides on this. Some look at the water and they say, well, that's the difference between natural birth and, and, and spiritual birth. And so you have to be born into this world. And so the water is imagery for the breaking of the water. And so it's a picture of that. But then you have to be born spiritually. And a lot of people side on that. But there's a difficulty. There is no other reference of being born of water to represent physical birth. And so D.A. Carson, one of the commentaries I read, he just says, I, mean, I, I just don't think that's quite it. Now a lot of denominations, they also looked at born of water. And they say, well, you have to be baptized. And so they say born of water is an illusion in New Testament baptism. And so you have to be baptized to be saved. And so you have to go through the water, but the Spirit has to do something. And so you have to first go through the water to be saved. But the problem is I feel like the New Testament stands in contradiction of that. That it's a concept of God doing something in you. And God does something in you and it causes new life. And New Testament baptism is really not established at this point. And so what happens when we see this, he looks at Nicodemus and he says, why don't you understand this? You're the teacher of Israel. And so if you remember, look at the, look at the verse, in verse 9, or actually back up to verse 8, it says this, or verse 9, it says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? 
And so when he looks at him, he says, there's got to be something in what you've studied. You're an expert on the Old Testament. There were all these pointers that pointed to this truth. But the problem is there's never a time that it says, born again. And there's something of the nature that he says about how this works. Look back up in verse 8. It says this is about how it works. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So does everyone born of the Spirit. And what he says, I mean, there's two things that really come out. Now, the word wind and spirit, it's the, it's the same word in the Greek. And so he's using a play on words to really build a picture. And you can almost sense, like, they're on the corner in Jerusalem. And the wind rustles through and moves the sycamore tree leaves. And he says, man, it's just like the wind. You don't really know much about the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you can't deny that it's effective. You can't deny that it causes change. You can't deny that it changes. And we know a lot more about how wind works, but it's still an invisible force that we can't deny. I mean, he didn't look at him and say, well, what we're experiencing is there's probably a high-pressure system that's moving in a cyclonic force up by the Arabian Peninsula. And since it's moving that way, it pushes the pressure to this low-pressure system that now is coming through Jerusalem because of the warming that's coming from the ground and the coastal effect. And I don't know if that really works that way. I just read those words so I could say that part. And so he's saying, he didn't go to explanation. He just says, look, if you looked at this world and you act like wind didn't do anything— how would you explain the trees moving? How would you explain flags waving? How would you explain all of a sudden walking and seeing leaves jump up and spin around and then drop back down? How would you explain that effect? You feel the effect. You see the effect it has, but you don't know how it works. And I feel like he's saying something about salvation. I feel like he's saying, you don't have to know everything of how it works. You just need to know it works. And so he starts to say, this is how it works. And the imagery we've got to just wrestle with. I mean, have you ever been in a storm where you thought the wind was going to kill you? First place I did student ministry was in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Everyone thinks Weatherford, Texas. And uh, in Weatherford, um, there's no trees. And so nothing stops the wind. And so it blows all the time. It's always blowing. And matter of fact, it affected me so much. If I ever got to a place where there was no wind, I felt like something was about to happen. Like it was this eerie feeling of something is about to go down. One night we were out, I was with a friend, and we were fishing in a, in a pond. It was kind of a big pond. And when I say pond, you're probably picturing something beautiful, but this is western Oklahoma. You need to think kind of mud water, like it's almost solid, kind of water, really red. And we're out fishing, and the strangest thing is happening to me. We are catching fish. And so we are catching fish, and on the horizon, we see a storm come up, and we see lightning, and we hear thunder, and the wind just picks up a little bit, but we can't stop because we're catching fish. And so we keep catching fish, and it seems like the thunder's getting louder, and it's getting closer, and we are in this little aluminum boat with a 1.5 horsepower trailing motor. Now, I don't know how they measure horsepower, but I am quite sure it was not as powerful as one and a half horses. And so we are out on this pond, and we are catching fish, so we won't stop. All of a sudden, we hear this noise, and it's like all at once, the storm coming on this front of wind with rain behind it comes over the few trees that are there, and it hits the water, and there's like this wave coming right at us. And we're still just trying to catch fish. 
And so we look at each other, and my friend, he's in the back, and he's on the mower, and I'm like, hit it, and he hits that 1.5 trolley motor, and he revs it up, and he goes, and we start moving at the pace of, well, fish were swimming faster, and we are moving, and the wind and the rain is coming behind us, and I look at him like, we've got to hurry, we've got to go, and he just sits there, and the storm hits, and you, had, you could not deny the power of the wind. It affected everything. And so when we see in verses 3 through 12, this starts to unfold. Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and says, you don't have to understand how all of this works out. You just need to understand it's powerful and it's effective. It's effective and it takes what it does. And so look at verse 3 and 5. We want to look at these in parallel because they're almost the exact same sentence. And so what we're going to do to understand what it means by water and spirit, we're going to take everything that's the same and we're going to move it away. And so look at verse 3. It says, Jesus answered him. Now look at verse 5. Jesus answered him. And so move that away. That's common. And then it says, truly I say to you. Look at verse 3. Truly I say to you. Look at verse 5. Truly I say to you. So we take it away. And then it says, unless one is born again. But here in verse 5 it says, unless one is born of water and spirit. So we keep that. But then it ends with this. He cannot see the kingdom of God in verse 3. And he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so most of this is the same. And so it's almost like he comes, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, I see a lot. We see what's going on. We see what you're doing. And Jesus says, you don't see anything. You have to be born again to see. And then it goes from that and he doesn't get it. And so he gives another description. What born again means is it means this. You have to be born of water and of the spirit. And then in verse 9 he says, you should understand what I'm saying. And so it points us to the Old Testament where he says you should see it because it's always been this way. And so we don't see the term born again, but we see water and spirit bringing new life all throughout the Old Testament. And so if you put your finger here and you switch back to Ezekiel 36, I want to show a place where this comes together, where where it demonstrates that Jesus says it's always been this way and you have a great need. And so Ezekiel 36, and it's going to get a little weird here because it's Ezekiel 36, But it says this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And so this starts, and it says, I will use water, clean water. And it's God talking to Ezekiel. This is what I'm going to do for my people. I will clean them. I will repair all the filth that they've caused. And it's, I will use clean water to do it. Liv, um, our second daughter, she's our messy kid. We'll see, we'll see how Cruz does. Um, but she's our, she's our messy kid. But she's also our kid that eats really, really well. She eats everything. I mean, she eats everything. Matter of fact, every time we pick her up from the nursery, I am quite sure she is going to bust from all the goldfish that they have given to her because she keeps coming back and she just does this more. And so, which if I were them, I'd give them all the goldfish she wanted. Just be happy. But she is the messiest eater at all. And so she eats and it gets all over her and somehow it gets in her. Sometimes we think her skin is just absorbing it, which stands in stark contrast to her oldest daughter, Quinn, who we don't know if she ever eats. I mean, she never eats. 
And so Liv just eats, and so we have all these Instagram pictures of her eating, and food is all over her. And when we get the rag to clean her, she wants to clean herself. And so she takes her filthy hands that have yogurt and everything on top of it, and she takes her face, and she tries to clean her face, which just spreads the filth all around, and it expands it to her hair. And sometimes it gets in her ear, and we have to pick it out, and it goes everywhere. And it tells dirty hands can't clean. And so we have to get a clean rag to clean her up. And we see this picture where God says, your dirty hands can't clean. I have to clean you. And it goes on in verse 26, and we see the spirit side. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Do you hear what he says? He says, I'll give you a new heart and you'll be a new person. You'll be able to. Now, when we look at this, it goes on. I mean, even more incredible in Ezekiel, the next chapter 37, we see um, the story of the dry bones where he says this in verse three, he says, and God said to me, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I love how he answers. And I answered, oh Lord, you know, which is a great noncommittal, isn't it? He says, I don't know, you know. You know, it's like when someone says something to you and you don't know what to say. And so you don't want to commit one way or the other. So you just kind of say, huh, okay. And so this uncommittal, you know, verse 4, it says, Then he said to me, prophesy. He said, preach. He said, preach over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And so the picture is Ezekiel is over this valley and he's looking at it and a battle had happened and all the bodies had just laid and there were dry bones because they had completely decomposed. There was no essence of life. And he said, preach God's word to him. And he starts to preach to him. And look what happens. Prophesy to these. Thus say the Lord that behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And so what he says to Nicodemus, it's always been this way. God has to come and cleanse you, and God has to give you new life. It's not something you can do. Dead bones cannot make themselves live again. And so it starts to unfold in such a way that when you understand how the Pharisees thought of the coming kingdom, it was something that he would look at him and say, Jesus, you promised too much. So the Pharisees, they believed in the kingdom of God. It was coming. It was going to be a glorious day where a son of David, the Messiah, was their king again. And so new rulership. It was the right king. And he would set up new reign, new institutions that would come and bring a new kingdom. And we would overthrow the Roman Empire and no longer be subjected to those pagans. We would have this theocracy where God would reign. And so it was this time where a new leader would come. There would be new institutions and new rules. And we would have a new kingdom. And what he's saying, is new power, new leadership, new institutions is not enough for the new kingdom. I need new people. When he looked at new birth, he didn't really think we have to step back inside our mothers to be born. It was this, you have to have a complete do-over. You have to be reborn. Your life has to be renewed. And at the base of all our hearts, we feel this. Have you ever laid at bed at night and kind of between being awake and being asleep, remembering the sins of your past, the way they have hurt others, the way they have driven you away from fellowship, 
the, the patterns that you can't escape that hang on to you? And have you ever thought, I just wish I could do it again? I wish I could have a clean slate. And so when Jesus says what the new kingdom is, you have to be born again, he says, I have to make a new kind of people. And he looks at Jesus and he says, I can conceive how new leadership could be made. I can conceive how new rules could be made. I can conceive how new institutions be made. But you promise too much. You can't make people new. No one gets a second chance. And it's exactly what he's saying. And so look at this. And so to that, look at what happens in verse 11. In verse 11, what Jesus says about his authority over lostness, Jesus claims absolute authority over salvation. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And so he stands and he says, Our, Jesus is alone, but he says, Our testimony, he says, All the prophets have pointed this direction. We need a new heart, a new life. We have to be remade. Now, verse 12, it says, If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe me, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so when he says earthly things and heavenly things, he comes alongside and he says this incredible thing. He says, Oh, Nikki, Nikki, if you want me to tell you about the new kingdom, if you want me to tell you what the throne room of God is like, the glory that you could bask in, what it smells like, the reign of God and how it affects, what it looks like, if you want me to tell you all the glory of the new kingdom, how could you expect to relate to that when you can't understand what I'm telling you right now to get in the kingdom? God has to do something in you. You have to be born again. Earthly things. Something has to happen in you on this side of eternity. And he says, let's revel in what God does in us. Let's try to understand that. And so he claims authority. I mean, he is saying this. Look at the verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. And he says, you want to know how I know about this? You want to know how I know about the kingdom of God, which is establishing itself right now? It's going to establish itself in the heart of believers, in new life, in new people who have been changed. You want to know how I know about it? Because I came from heaven. I mean, it is this incredible claim, and he saw it. And he says, the only way you could have this information is if I explain it to you. And listen to how D.A. Carson in The God Who's There describes this. He says, make no mistake. The reason that Jesus can speak so bluntly about new birth is grounded in the claim to revelation. That is a claim that he is teaching is revelation from God himself. That is, no more theologians protecting his corner among theologians who like to squabble and write books. This is the word of someone who claims to have come from the very presence of God, God's peer, God's own self. He is God's word, God's own self-expression with God. Truly God in the complexity of one God who has become a human being. Jesus has come from there. So he speaks with the authority of revelation. And he says, this is how you're going to know about it. I'm going to tell you. And so just look at the progression of what's happened. So we start in verse 1. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, I know. We know a lot about you. And there's going to be a lot of people in a lot of churches who look to God and say, we know. We know what this is all about. We know what it takes to be saved, and we're doing it. 
And Jesus says, you don't know. He says, you have to be born again to see. And then in verse 5, he says, you have to be born of spirit and of water to even enter. He says, you don't know. You don't have the true reality. And then it progresses. and He says, I'm the only one who can give you the true reality. And he says, you have to be born again. He says, I don't understand what you're talking about. And he says, you should understand. And he alludes to the Old Testament, which he was a student of the Old Testament. And he says, it's always been there. And we see in Ezekiel that he says, you have to be cleansed from your sin. And then he says, the Spirit of God has to make new life in you. It's not something you do. It's something that happens upon you. And he pushes the picture of being born again. He says, the parent gives birth to the a child. And so he says it's in God's hand. God has to do something for you. And then you almost see Nicodemus still looking at him like, man, I know the passage you're talking about, but I just don't get it. And so look how clear he makes this. And what he's going to tell is Jesus tells us something about how the gospel saves us from our lostness. He says you are saved by faith in the complete work of me, of Jesus on the cross. Look at verse 14. He says, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness. And so what he did right there is he alluded to something that that Nicodemus would have known a lot about. He alludes to Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, if you just want to write it down, Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9, what's happened It's a really short story that that God's people, the Israelites, they have been saved from their captors and they are out of Egypt and they are in the wilderness and they are walking around. And what happens in verses 4 through 9 is they get hungry and they get discouraged. And so it says that they they start to speak against God and against Moses. And they ask this question, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And look at this, for there is no food and no water. And then look at it. They say there's nothing to eat here. But then they say, and we loathe this worthless food. And so they get to the wilderness. They say, we'd rather be slaves. We'd rather still be there. And we're here. And we say there's no food. But really, it's just not the food we like. I mean, I'm sick of manna. I mean, it was kind of cool at the beginning, but I don't like it. I'm sick of quail. I mean, you can only eat so much game, right? You know, water that comes from rock, it's fun at first, but I'm sick of it. And they grumble against God. And so what does God do? Well, let's read on because it gets better. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And so they grumbled against God. This is how we like to deal with complaints at Stonegate. You grumble against us, we're like, have a snake right there, you know? And so they grumble, and so God says, I'll just send some snakes to kill you. And so all of a sudden, these snakes start to bite people, and people start to die. And so this was literally snakes on the plane, not the airplane, the plane on the desert. Okay, not funny. And so literally, and they start to die. And so in verse 7, it says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to God and take away the serpents from us. And so do you see what happens is they say, we are the recipients of our sin and it is killing us. And so they go to Moses, the servant of God, and they say, you have to go to God to save us. Someone has to pray for this to stop. And so it goes on. And so Moses prayed for the people. Now verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Now look at verse 9. This is the picture. He says, you want to know how salvation is going to work? It's not on the education that you have. 
It's not on the time you spent in the synagogue. It's not that you're a ruler in Jerusalem and that you are very moral and you do good things and you went to the every VBS in your town. It's not any of that. He says, this is what it's going to be like. Just like the people in the desert, our ancestors were being bitten and they were dying because of their sin. Now look in verse 9. It says, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. And so in Numbers, when the consequences of our sin, when it caught up, and they were bitten, and they were poisoned, and they were dying, the solution was just look up and expect God to do an incredible miracle. Now this is where it gets a little strange. And so it says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted, lifted up. It gets a little weird because you don't have to read the Bible very far to realize serpent equals bad. I mean, you get to Genesis 3 and the serpent comes and it, it, it confuses Eve and says, God doesn't really love you. He didn't want the best for you. You make your own decision. You be like God. And presents this idolatrous idea. And all of mankind crumbles and falls apart. And we are now poisoned and dead. And we are now diseased. And death happens. And loss happens. And then we get to the end of the Bible. And the serpent has now become a dragon. And we need someone to kill the dragon. And so it's really good that Jesus shows up with his flaming sword, which must be really effective because he kills the dragon and so all this happens and so you say serpent equals bad and all of a sudden the Christ the Messiah I'm going to be in a lot of ways just like the serpent who's been lifted up now just real fast close your Bibles and close your notes and I, I, I want to talk to you just paint this picture really clear because it gets to the very end and he says this is how the gospel is going to save you And so if you're looking at that picture, all of the people in the desert, they've been bitten. Many are dead and they're dying. The, the poison is coursing through their veins. And God says, make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And suddenly to be healed, they look at all the causes and effects that are causing their trouble. It's now all the center on a pole. And he says, this is how it's going to work with the Son of Man. All the causes of sin, Satan, and death will fall upon me when I'm upon the cross. And when you behold and you see the wrath of God fall upon Jesus, it is what saves you. And so it tells us two things, how the gospel saves us. First, it tells us Jesus pays the penalty of our sins. And if you're here this morning, and you may have grown up in church your whole life, but you've been trusting in other things, you need someone to pay the penalty of your sin. And all the penalty of sin fell upon Jesus. And it is a miraculous thing that you have new birth because of what he did, where he cleanses and washes all the effects of your sin. All the effects, lies, death, chaos, sin, evil, wickedness, separation of God, 
rape, murder, pornography, whatever would be there, it falls upon Jesus and he takes the cause of the serpent and he takes it upon himself and it dies with him. So the gospel comes in, it pays the penalty of our sin. And so if you're an unbeliever and and you're unsure and you feel drawing upon your heart, you need to look to Jesus. But what does the gospel say to believers here? In the same imagery, it says that Jesus heals the sins that have been committed against us. At the point where the serpent, at the point where sin has bitten your life, at the point where it is poisoning your life, Jesus also heals that. And so let's pray. And so with your heads down and your eyes closed, there would just be a couple questions. And so if you're an unbeliever and you've never stepped over the threshold of salvation and you're wondering how this works, but you sense, man, something is different and you feel this, what the theologians call effectual calling. This drawing, this John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father sent me draws him. It is an invitation that you can be reborn. You are the passive agent. God is going to give you a new beginning because he is washing the effects of sin away. It would be that you would receive that and you would rejoice in the salvation that God has brought. But there's another side. There's those who have been reborn. They are alive. But the serpent has bitten places in their life. And there are places that are wounded and hurt. And there is poison decaying, throbbing through your body. And Jesus would say, you you look to the cross. You look to the cross for healing of where the serpent is. The sins that you have done have been cleansed, but the sins that have been committed against you, I can also heal. So where has sin affected your life? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.